Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We are continuing our Tartan Talk series by discussing the subject of our February cover story, which also happens to be one of the most debated parts of a golf course, bunkers. And joining us to discuss this topic is Ian Andrew of Ian Andrew Golf Design. Ian, first off, thanks for taking some time to join us. What is your definition of a hazard? Well, the the idea of a hazard is to uh, punish, um, essentially, by one stroke, a poorly played shot. But what's beautiful about the hazard is if they can make an extraordinary recovery shot, they can actually undo that penalty, essentially the the function that the the bunker plays. How do architects place them? And I know that's a broad question, Ian, but in your mind, how do architects place bunkers and other hazards? Well, essentially, um, what the golfer wants to do is to take as direct line as possible to the hole. Um, That's kind of known as the ideal line. And and our role is to make that journey a little more interesting than that. So we use bunkers or other hazards, and essentially we create uh, risk and reward choices. But what they become interested in is the idea of taking um, uh, a shorter route that starts to flirt with the trouble. And, and it's essentially that balance between trying to take the shortest distance to the hole and um, balance that against the risk of starting to find those hazards and potentially facing that shot penalty. So that's, a, that's about how we place them. And essentially uh, what we try to do is to say to them that the more you flirt with our hazards, the closer you dare to come, often what we'll do is we'll reward you with the most direct line or the ideal angle back into the hole. And essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to place bunkers in pretty much the position players want to get to or want to be, and then it's up to them to sort of with what we've set out in front of them or for them to contend with. And then what they've got to do is they've got to challenge themselves and then execute. And that's essentially sort of the, the, the basis of how strategy is formed with bunker placement. When you're doing plans for a golf course or when you're on, on site at, at a golf course, how much of your, your time and energy is devoted to getting things right with bunkers? Well, when, particularly when I'm working with an existing client, a lot of times I spend a lot of the time looking at uh, bunker placement. Uh, a lot of what I do happens to be restorative, so some of it's bringing back the, the original history, the, the, the look, the style in it. But often um, it's also looking at the placement of bunkers. I also do some renovation, and, and in the cases of renovation, you start to look at um, whether the bunkers are effective in their locations, um, what sort of um, thought they bring to play or whether they don't bring any thought to play, whether they sort of congest a hole and, and everybody lays up because there's really no, no room to, to take any risks, or whether they encourage people to uh, flirt and challenge the golf hole itself. And, and essentially what happens, particularly in, on the renovation side for me, is what I like to do is I like to have players sort of be forced to make choices so that I'll reward them well for taking something on and succeeding, but I'll also penalize them for taking it on and not succeeding. And, but the idea is I find it more interesting as a, um, as a style of play when you've got to decide whether you, you want to challenge it, whether you want to flirt, whether you want to sort of begin the dance with that bunker, whether you, you want to try to get as close as you can, but the first time you knock it in, you're going to play well away from the outside of it because you don't want to face that penalty again. And essentially, I, I find that's the most magical part of the game is sort of that dance of, do I take it on? How close do I go? Do I feel good today? That sort of thing. And I think that's where we get really engaged as players. It brings up the excitement level when you've got all that risk and reward. If it's just execution, if it's just placing it between two bunkers set on the sides, it's really not that interesting. It's, it's just all about, can you hit the ball straight? 
the game's a lot more thrilling when you have to think your way through the golf course and, and will place bunker, and particularly by people like uh, McKenzie and Colt and uh, Stanley Thompson. When it's well placed, it, it gets you starting to think about how do I dare? I mean, if you ask that question to yourself when you're playing your golf course, do I dare take this on? Then usually that means the architecture is pretty strong. Ian, what are some of the biggest differences between the bunkers of the Golden Age architects and the bunkers of courses that were designed in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s? Well, the, the, interest, the most interesting thing is, um, well, I'll start off with one of them is depth. The Golden Age was a little bit more um, comfortable with the idea of making things deep and making the consequence often dire. And that made those bunkers a lot more strategically valuable than the, the modern bunker. The, the, the bunker from sort of those uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s started to get a little bit shallow, and part of the reason was fairness crept into the game. If you're not afraid of a bunker, there really doesn't have much strategic consequence. And unfortunately, we got into a period where bunkering became more about eye candy than it did it became about strategic consequence. What I find from uh, one of the major differences to that is there were more bunkers put in in the 70s and 80s, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, but they were a lot uh, shallower, a lot more playable. And then the other thing is a lot more of them were to direct play, to help the player. So they're on the outsides of dog legs, and they're framing the hole and telling them the line. Whereas the, if you go back to the golden age, a lot more of that bunkering was about challenging the bunker. And do you have the, the gumption to take this on? And, and if you get in here, boy, you're going to pay the price. The architecture got a lot more um, comfortable for the player and a lot more friendly, and I think it really lost something, and that's why I think we've seen such a swing back towards Golden Age principles recently, is that we don't need as much bunkering. We do need more consequence, and that creates a lot more strategy. The interesting thing is also the Golden Age and the, the current movement, minimalism, has gone back to width. For the players that are weaker, they can play around the trouble, and they can kind of tack their way along. Whereas I found uh, that modern era kind of overdefined everything. There were bunkers left, bunkers right, bunkers short, bunkers long. And it was just all visual and everything was way too planned out. And it just kind of lost something. It became architecture light to me. As somebody who appreciates golf course architecture like yourself and as somebody who spends countless hours studying it, what is it like when you have the opportunity to restore bunkers or any other part of a course that's designed by someone like Stanley Thompson or Walter Travis or Donald Ross or A.W. Tillinghast or Willie Park Jr., just what type of uh, project and honor is it? And what are some things that go in your mind when you're you're working on on work that they did? Well, it, it's a great honor because, I first, first of all, I've been fortunate to actually work on all of those architects. There are lessons you learn from working on them. So one of the things that you get back from it as a designer is, each time you work on a project um, designed by one of the great architects is you, you get very deeply involved in that architecture, and particularly in the, the restoration of it. But it also it, it gives you back lessons and ideas and techniques, and it, it, it's teaching you at the same time. Um, the honor is some of those works are extremely exquisite. And it's a great pleasure to return them to their original forms and then present them back to the players and other architects so that people can appreciate how good the architecture was by some of these um, extremely talented designers of the past. So it's, it's a chance really to give something back to golf architecture or to players. 
so that they can truly enjoy uh, the talents. And that's what restoration is about. It's, it, it's, it, it's about presenting things the, the way those designers saw them. It's not about um, perfection because there, there's been sort of this misguided notion that you can renovate some of those golf courses to achieve so-called perfection. But I, I find one of the more interesting things is um, people don't understand that sometimes the flows that the Golden Age designers set up where one hole was open and more accessible and another hole was extremely difficult, counterbalanced beautifully and set highs and lows in the round. And, and it's really important to restore those things as well, that you don't need uh, bunkers um, pushing or requesting every single shot and demanding continuously. And I think some of the restraint that they showed is, is sort of what's really making a, a comeback now is, is an understanding that one of the reasons we restore them, one of the reasons we, we have such a grand feeling for those golf courses is because there's beautiful flows in your emotions as well that they bring with the highs and the lows and the, the difficulty and then the accessibility. So uh, there's a lot to learn from those golf courses. One of the uh, themes of the, the, the cover story we have about bunkers is how superintendents have to maintain them to what their membership or clientele wants. How much different did a did a bunker play in the golden age? What were the expectations in the golden age compared to maybe the cust- customer expectations today? Well, back then, uh, you would find yourself in a bunker. Uh, it, you could be in a footprint. Um, it certainly wasn't smooth. Uh, sands would be different from one bunker to the next. Uh, bunker faces, some of them may be ragged and ripped up. Others may be formal. In the same golf course I'm talking about, Essentially, it was you found yourself here, you get yourself out, and you get yourself going. And there was very little sympathy for the the plight of the player. It was part of the game. It was part of the spirit of the game. We've hit an era where, and this goes back to, I mentioned fairness before, of why bunkers got shallow, where players expect the ball to roll down the face and end up in the middle of the bunker. They expect the ball to be on an almost perfectly flat lie, they expect the entire ball to be sitting out of the sand, and they expect those conditions to be from the bunkers on the first hole right through to the bunkers on the 18th hole. So what, they're, what they expect now is perfection. And the irony of that is um, the cost for doing that is incredible. Bunkers now, in many budgets, exceed the, the cost of providing grains, which shows the insanity of where this has all got to. The cost of building bunkers to, to, to detail them like that and to put the sands in place has gone up probably fourfold since I uh, started working in the business. Uh, might even be more than that now I think about it. But the, the expense for doing bunkers is astronomical, and the shelf life is actually quite short compared to all other elements in a golf course. So we, here we are. We have the most expensive thing in the golf course that has the shortest shelf life, and the irony is we've, we've got them to a point where the maintenance is so perfect that essentially they aren't the full-shot penalty that they're supposed to be. Nowadays, the, the lies are so good, players get up and down regularly because they're, they're given a perfect place to play from. And it's why we watch professional golf and see golfers saying, get in the bunker, get in the bunker. Why? Because the lie is better there than it is in the rough. And that's where we've sort of failed architecture because... If it's not really a penalty anymore, then essentially it doesn't perform the strategic value that it was supposed to, which is essentially a lost shot unless an extraordinary recovery is played. And that's where I'm struggling with the whole idea of if they're 
expensive to build, expensive to maintain, short-lived, and losing strategic value, I, I think we we may enter an era where we're going to see sort of uh, bunker counts go down dramatically because, frankly, something like uh, tightly mown turf around a green can have much more strategic consequence than a bunker does anymore. You've written extensively about this, and you've written some pretty opinionated pieces about bunkers and other areas of the golf course and the maintenance standards for today. Is there anything that can be done? Have you seen any successful strategies to kind of reverse that quest for perfection? Is there anything that a golf course superintendent, a golf course architect, or anyone else in the business can do to, to, to kind of bring it down to more realistic levels? Well, put it this way. I was thrilled when they put furrows in the bunkers for the memorial, um, the Jack Nicklaus's event, but I, I don't see that coming anytime soon. Um, I also uh, I, I don't see when clubs have the money and, and, and memberships have such a, a, a power over the inherently over the the superintendents in many cases i I don't see that changing if they know it's possible that's what they're gonna you know if they've got the ability to pay for it that's what they're going to demand um what i would love to do is i'd love to encourage uh those members um because we're really talking about members in a lot of these cases encourage them to understand the strategic value of a bunker and then bring the the maintenance down slightly um, and, and the cost down slightly uh, to essentially make it more of a penalty. I, I think taking it on from that end of things would be very helpful. But this is one where we win a lot of battles, like trees, trees on golf courses and, and, and mowing and a lot of other things. We've won a lot of battles, but, boy, the, the, the bunker one is probably the hardest one of all to win when it comes to playability. Um, it's really tough to convince people to take something less than perfection because they feel like, you know, they've got their ego wrapped up in how they play and their handicap, and you're asking essentially to park their ego. And and yet when they go somewhere else to play, they comfortably do that, but not at their home golf course. So I'm not optimistic on this one. Sorry. I asked you for an honest answer. I, I, I appreciate that. How does that demand for perfection or extreme playability then maybe restrict or hamper some of what a golf course architect can do with a bunker, if at all? Uh, I, I still think in, in many ways we're limited. What it all comes down to is um, depending on how severe the form you want to make is depends on how much money you need to spend in the detailing to keep it together. So most anything is possible. What happens is really it's, it, it's more about sort of a combination of finance, maintenance, and art that sort of leads to where the limitations are. So the, the interesting thing about bunkers is we can take them to a very extreme place um, because we've learned how to technically overcome a lot of things that they couldn't in the golden age, and we've got a lot of solutions that now will solve that. The problem is the price of doing things uh, is gone through the roof. So... It's like I've got a golf course with a single row irrigation out in Southampton. It's a joy to see that old approach. But now in today's day and age, you can be you know, five or six rows deep with irrigation. It's cost. But what it does is it, it creates flexibility. So, you know, the, this, anything's possible. It's just, just because we can doesn't mean we should is essentially where I come back to. What are some golf courses you visited or studied that kind of have that balance between 
interesting bunkers and play, playable bunkers that don't go to the extreme of perfection. Are there any examples you can think of that you've seen in your, your travels? Well, I like the ones at St. George's in Toronto um, because there's enough depth and enough disaster. Um, the, the detailing is, is exquisite on them. And, um, and not everything, you know, you've got noses and you've got a lot of other things you've got to contend with. You may get a bad break, but but there's a beautiful artistry to the original bunkering, so you sort of accept that as part of the, the, the sort of the greater good. So um, I enjoy the fact that the, the, the bunkers there are not perfect. But I find when I play in the U.K., uh, I enjoy those just as much. As long as the ball's not burying in the sand, um, it's just a matter of figuring out what technique you need to, to get the ball back into play and, and then just accepting that fact. And I find... Some of the bunkers that, you know, there's a few of the older golf courses around um, that have still, um, it's sort of a, a pseudo beach sand, um, and and that's still what they have in their bunkers. And I find that's a little more inconsistent and, and a little bit more in tune with strategically what I'd like to see with bunkering. I'm finding the manufactured sand, the, which the majority of the courses up here have gone to, um, sits the ball up so well. It, it does wonderful things for for drainage and, and uh, provides the abil- some stability for the superintendent on high faces as well. But at the same time, the, the, it does create perfection for the golf ball. So it's sort of the, the other factor that comes with. I think what we're forced to do is to try to make our forms just a slightly little bit more extreme if we want them to be um, just as difficult to play from. So a little deeper a little more sharp, and that's sort of the way you overcompensate for the the fact that the sand is um, so playable. So I, I think we're starting to to see some work that um, resembles a lot of the, the, the Rainer-style bunkers, the, the, the very steep Rainer-style bunkers, where you're looking at the similar depths and similar steepnesses to overcome the fact that uh, things have become so playable. What are some other parts of golf courses you've seen or worked on that kind of have strayed from their golden age intent because of today's playability standards? Well, I'll give you a positive one, an interesting spin. One of the fascinating facts for me is that there was no short turf around greens um, other than sort of dormancy periods or dryness. Um, the, the, you know, you'd get fairway, but not, not tight, tight turf that we see nowadays. So it, it's something that's actually fairly modern and fairly, the way it is now is, is uh, fairly immediate, too. It, it's, it's not something from the 70s and 80s, the, the tightness that we've got things to and the firmness. One of the joys of this is we've got this to a point where, uh, for high handicaps, it's potable. But when you think about um, a surface around the edges of a green that are that tight, uh, Shinnecock's a great example of it, where a ball can just miss for an elite player, where they've just missed, and the old ring of rough used to hold them in place. But the fact there's no long rough around those edges, the golf ball now uh, starts to really get away and has a tendency to get away on the, on the high side of the hole, too. So they're actually playing back down the, down the green and trying to hit recovery shots. And I think the fascinating part about this is I really think it's brought a new element to architecture, a, a really interesting fascinating element where um, we can use that tighter turf as a much better uh, way of defending against the elite player 
and it's got that beautiful, surprising sort of uh, side gift of high handicaps love it because, you know, they hit it all over the place, but the beauty is now they can hit anything they want to recover, including putting, which a, a good player won't do because they want more control over the ball. Whereas the, so, uh, you know, it's interesting where sometimes technology, uh, like within the bunkers, actually takes away strategic value, but I look at the ability to go really tight and to mow more areas um, low and bring more ground contour in play because the lower the turf, the more the ground matters and the more the ball will be directed. The, t- the tighter the turf, the more the ball gets d- directed or deflected. And I think this has really opened up an interesting avenue to sort of take on the future and that's why i say i think the future for us is going to be less bunkers there's no point in using as many bunkers but using a lot more mown turf whether it's in fairways on ridges and extending out ridges and 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 undulations further to have them much more dramatically important in a fairway or around greens to allow the ball to run and to place um more of a premium on recovery shots and 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 a and a the precision of approach shots. So I think I think the funny part is I talk about the expense, but I, I think what we need is we need sort of a sea change in architectural thought where we've got these two things going on, but there's an obvious move, and I, I really think that's where golf needs to go. Ian, what about the sandbelt look where it's mowed real short around the bunker and then flows into the bunker? Are we going to see that in North America? Do you think that's something that maybe people are going to dabble with, and how could that make the game more enjoyable for if courses do go to a look similar to that we'll see that um in fact i did that at laval so that the, we've got a canadian canadian version of that up here um and I, I do believe it's actually the best presentation of golf outside of link it's the closest we've got to links courses outside of the uk and and i think their presentation of golf is perfect um, the whole idea that they've got of I, i'm going to sort of go sideways quickly but They've got the notion of we're going to maintain perfectly where you want to be, and we're not going to bother with where you, where you shouldn't be. And essentially, they don't irrigate, they don't um, fertilize, and they don't really treat roughs. Roughs are just whatever will grow during that period of time with whatever moisture comes. I'm hoping that we see a little bit of a turn towards that because it would be a great environmental solution where if we could go to... Um, allowing things to get a little bit thin and wild on the edges or just let them go dormant, we could really actually address some of our water issues. But I also think it does some interesting things for play. So I do think their approach is actually the ideal presentation of the game, and that's why I emulated it when I was asked to, to redo a golf course in Montreal. I like the playability. I like the difficulty that comes through setup. So what they do is it's playable when you play there normally, but if you're playing in an event... What they do is they firm everything out, they dry everything out, and then they start to take the pins to the edges where things start to run off. Actually, Shinnecock kind of plays. They, they kind of work the same way. The interiors are comfortable, but as you go out and as you firm it up and as you speed it up, it gets more and more frightening and more and more trying to play well. And I, I think that is actually a really good solution because it allows golf courses a lot more flexibility to move up and down the setup to move up and down the challenge. So there's always a playable end, and all you've got to do is just back off and, and leave everything longer, and there's always a really challenging end, and, that's, that's, uh, and that style of architecture really lends to it where you, all it is is just mowing and drying. 
that's our, that was our intention. We were supposed to hold the Canadian Open there, and our intention was to keep it playable for members, and that was the only way we could figure out that we could possibly um, provide a little bit of defense against the modern game. You can't do it with length. You can't do it with rough. You can't do it with bunkering. But you can do it with the ball getting away because it starts to create seeds of doubt. And the other thing is it allows you to work the edges to um, apply a little bit of subtle pressure. That's Augusta, by the way. That's Augusta. In, in, I mean, Augusta is the closest version in America to that ideal. And that's why, that's why Augusta National is so great to watch. Because everything's possible, but also the, the, the miss can be far worse than you fully expect. Because it's not obvious. It's not like a bunker or a, or, a, or a hazard like you've got on 12. Some of the worst places to miss are actually some of the stuff that's just mowed tight out there. Once you miss, there's no up and down. As you know, from from working with clubs, th- things change very slowly sometimes in the golf business. What are some things that a club can do over the course of time to to introduce some of these philosophies and styles? To me, the, the thing that's lost the most is space. You know, we went through the a beautification era uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where what happened was new irrigation systems came in, and essentially um, double-row systems set the widths, and what it did was it did actually bring in fairways. In almost all instances, brought in fairways, so it changed the mowing patterns. And then there was space between the old tree lines and the new fairway lines, and clubs got into the idea of, well, Tougher is better, and let's plant some trees in there, and that'll also fill the spaces. And what happened is all of that's now grown up, and all those corridors are too tight. And I think that the biggest thing most clubs can do is look at at returning just the scale, the space, to their golf holes. Uh, it doesn't affect the elite player. The elite player is never really worried about that, but it sure helps the higher handicaps, but it also helps the turf. And I think that's the biggest issue for me is, you know, today's day and age, we mow our greens so much tighter than we did 10 years ago, so much tighter than they mow it so, so much tighter than they did 10 years before that. And the problem is the expectations, or sorry, not the expectations, the requirements for sunlight and airflow and, and all those really important things for growing environments have gone up sort of tenfold, not onefold, tenfold with that extra foot of speed. And I think what clubs have got to do is they've just got to remove all the, 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 the problems from turf around greens, but open things up, allow the air to flow, allow the, it'll bring some of the health back. It'll also allow superintendents a little more flexibility on, on how they manage, and they can, play things a little, they can get things a little bit leaner and drier and, uh, because they, they've now got better growing environments and they're not forced to, to, to feed or water or, or just try to keep things going. Uh, so I think that almost every golf course I've ever been to, if they could just address that, um, opening things up, the, the views, seeing the land, it's probably the, the, the best improvement a club can make for almost next to nothing in, how, in most instances, too, because they can do long-term internal programs, usually, to deal with most of it, because it's secondary planning. It's not the the original trees of the golf course. It's not those beautiful oaks that you still want to, or whatever large hardwood you still want to maintain. It's all the, you know, it's, it's the cherry trees and all the crap that was planted afterwards that was done there for beauty that can all come down. It's usually manageable and way too many conifers, which is unhealthy. You get to see a lot of awesome land 
what are some things you're looking forward to in 2017, whether it's with your own work or just golf in general? What excites you about, about this year? I always enjoy seeing golf courses, so I, I've, got a, I've got a return to Ireland. I've been to Ireland a couple of times, but I'm going back, and I'm, I'm curious to see the changes at Port Rush, and then there's a, uh, a bunch of courses in the, the north that I want to see that are way out there, and I'm going to make the effort to see those. Now, that would be almost all of Ireland I've seen at that point. Um, I'm always curious to see... Um, works of Ross and Tillinghast around New York, and I'm going to make a, a, a grand effort to do that this year. And then I think the one I'm looking forward to the most is uh, uh, the only golf course I haven't seen in the top 50 in the world, which sounds strange, is Sand Hills. It's just one of those things. And I'm a lover of history. So um, my, my goal this year is I'm, I'm, there are two places I need to see to sort of fit all the pegs of history together where they're essential to sort of my understanding of things. One is Sand Hills because of the importance it played in, in sort of eventually pushing minimalism past uh, modernism as, as the dominant style of design. And then the, uh, the other one is Myopia Hunt. So that would be the last of all the original golf courses that sort of set the foundation for architecture in America. And uh, so I, I have a a quiet plan to go over there as well and I think I'm just going to enjoy um, the education that that provides not only for me but it's also an explanation of how architecture evolved so quickly it, it's one of the three golf courses that sort of changed um, people's minds and, and people's expectations on the game and it's been one I've wanted to see forever I think all of our listeners are now envious when they hear Sand Hills and Myopia Hunt and Ireland. Last thing before I, I let you go, what is it like when you're a golf course architect playing a golf course for the first time? What goes through your head, and what do you think? I hope I get it out and uh, make the putt. That, that's actually all I think about. I never feel sorry for myself. I, I remember the uh, first round I ever played at National Golf Links. I had to play one. The first bunker shot I played was from my niece, and I remember laughing with the player I was playing with, a good friend, and saying, how good is this? And uh, and we both laughed about the fact of trying to hit out of this trench bunker with my knees in the ground because we couldn't figure out another way to play the shot. And I kind of enjoy the spirit of the game. I, my very first round in the U.K., I played with my father, and I hit it in an extremely deep pot bunker. And the only way to play was backwards. And I remember I, grum I was young. I grumbled a little bit about it. My dad said, you haven't seen anything yet. And it's funny, by the end of the trip, I was kind of reveling the opportunities to play those shots. So I, I enjoy I, I enjoy the challenges. I, I don't take it personally. And the one thing I find is no matter where I go, I always admire what I see more than think about my own play. I'm always in love with the art form, the land form, and I'm always trying to learn something. And if anything, I can I can sit there sometimes looking at something that's so sublime and just think, I wish I built that, I wish I did that. It's actually kind of a really fun feeling to have of, of, of admiring something that, that's so well done and recognizing that it's so well done. And it just, it, 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 for me, it's a thrill. It's, it's like somebody who loves Picasso going to see some of his works in one of the great museums, you are in awe. And I get the same feeling on golf courses. I am just truly in awe at times. I just 
there are things where I, I wish I could have done that. We appreciate you joining us and taking on a difficult topic like bunkers. And where can our listeners and followers and readers go to learn more about what you do and to read about some of the, the things you've written about over the years? Well, if they're really interested, and, and I've sort of tweaked their interest in architecture, I wrote a blog for years that's still on online. Uh, the easiest way is just to uh, 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 just type in Ian Andrews' golf blog or golf design blog, and it'll take you there. I just it, It's got some crazy blogspot address. Um, go there, and you'll find there's an index, and you can read on anything from... Um, you know, short par threes. Uh, it'll there's some course reviews, but there's also a lot of essays on architectural theory. Uh, I would highly recommend reading the um, uh, complete look of bunkering. If you really want to know about bunkers, it's it's a long essay, um, probably five or six thousand words, but it it's full of all the quotes of all the great golden age architects, and that should get your interest flowing anyway in in the game. But if you're in, there's lots of essays to read. And, I think I even start off with a sort of the first ten to read, which really covers just about everything, and then from there you can sort of expand. But uh, anything you want to know about architecture is in there. There's probably 150,000 words, so uh, enjoy at your leisure. I know a couple of architects actually asked me if they could download the whole thing, which they did. Ian, this was a joy to to, to get you on Tartan Talks. We appreciate you taking the time for us, and good luck with everything you do this year, and I know we'll, we'll be following you. Thank you. I enjoyed this. I appreciate the opportunity. I think what you guys are doing with the Tartan Talks is fabulous. So thank you from all of us. It's a, it's a chance to share some thoughts and for me to listen to thoughts of other of my peers, which I enjoy a lot. You've been listening to the Superintendent Radio Network, the podcast of Golf Course Industry Magazine, a production of GIE Media. I've been your host, Guy Cipriano. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes or the SRN page, golfcourseindustry.com. Talk to us at srn at gie.net or at GCI Magazine on Twitter. Thanks for listening.